From Washington, VOA presents Issues in the News. Hello and welcome to Issues in the News. I'm Kim Lewis and joining me on the panel this week are VOA Senior Diplomatic Correspondent Cindy Sane and Christian Science Monitor Washington Bureau Chief Linda Feldman. Welcome Cindy and Linda. Well, here are the issues. The United States is warning Russia that any use of nuclear weapons in its invasion of Ukraine would trigger extraordinary consequences. Russian President Vladimir Putin said last week that he was prepared to, quote, use all the means available to us, including weapons of destruction to change the course of the war if Russia is threatened. Moscow claimed victory in an annexation vote, releasing what it called vote tallies, showing support in four partially occupied provinces in Ukraine to join Russia. Ukraine and its allies denounced the vote as an illegal sham. Russia conducted the voting under their electoral supervision and often with armed Russian officials going door to door collecting votes. More than 2,000 people in total have been detained across Russia for protesting against Putin's partial military mobilization to draft more troops into battle. Iranian riot police and security forces clashed with demonstrators in dozens of cities amid continuing protests against the death of 22-year-old Masa Amini. Amini was arrested this month in Tehran and died while in police custody for, quote, unsuitable attire, unquote, by the morality police who enforced the Islamic Republic's strict dress code. Iran's foreign minister says that the protest in his country will not destabilize Iran. Italy could have its first female prime minister and first far-right leader since World War II. Georgia Maloney rattled Europe, furthering fears about a new right-wing shift on the continent as it battles economic hardship and nervously watches a raging war in Ukraine. U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris condemned North Korea's brutal dictatorship and destabilizing weapons program, as she says, during a visit to the demilitarized zone separating the two Koreas. Well, those are the issues, and let's get started. Well, Cindy, in your coverage of Russia's threat to use nuclear weapons against Ukraine, how seriously is the U.S. taking these threats? Yes, Kim, it seems that the U.S. is taking these threats more seriously as we have sort of a convergence of situations now where we have what the U.S. and the West and European Union countries are calling sham referendums, as you said, with ballots cast at gunpoint in some cases, and the State Department saying the results were concocted, not collected. So we have these four areas now, which Russia says is going to have a ceremony and formally include them as part of Russia, these areas of Ukraine. So Russian President Putin has said that Russia will defend its territory, which it would also consider these areas using any means necessary, including weapons of destruction. So this has put the U.S. and others on alert. And we had an interesting situation at the State Department where spokesperson Ned Price was again asked what consequences it would have if Russia were to use nuclear weapons in its invasion of Ukraine. And he said, you know, we've used all the adjectives. We've said severe. We've said catastrophic. We've said, you know, all kinds of things. And then someone asked specifically, well, what if they just use like a 
relatively small tactical weapon. And he said the use of any nuclear weapon by the Kremlin would trigger extraordinary consequences. So this is something that is quite alarming. Linda, Ukrainian President Zelensky also told the UN Security Council that any annexation in the modern world, he says, is a crime. And he appeared to rule out future negotiations with Putin by adding, quote, there is nothing to talk about with this president of Russia, unquote. Your take on this situation? Zelensky has to say that. So Ukraine has never accepted any grabbing or annexation of that Russia has made on Ukrainian territory, including the annexation of Crimea eight years ago, and then the occupation of the Donetsk region also eight years ago. The minute they show any sign of compromise, then Russia goes for that. That would give Putin a very easy way out. The sad part of Ukraine's firm stand is that many, many more Ukrainians will die. Many Russians will continue to die. Zelensky is the backbone of the whole global situation here regarding Ukraine. You have Western Europe in a bit of turmoil, particularly with the election of Georgia Maloney in Italy, well, to the likely ascension to the prime ministership. She isn't quite there yet. And I know we're going to get to her, but there's growing division within Europe over just how much to arm Ukraine, how much to keep going on the arming and assistance to Ukraine. So having Zelensky be this very firm, compelling force on the world stage really, you know, adds to the drama and the likelihood that this war isn't going to end anytime soon. And also there's been more than 2,000 people in total who have been detained across Russia for protesting against Putin's partial military mobilization. So what more can you all tell us about these protests? As you know, I've spent a fair amount of time in that part of the world. I was a correspondent in Moscow in the late 80s and early 90s, and I've, I had been there more recently up until the pandemic started. And anytime you have mass protests in Russia, that's extraordinary. I mean, these are people who often don't really know what's going on because of the state control of media. And so when you have something happen that compels people to go into the streets, you know it's serious. It doesn't mean the Putin regime is about to fall, but it means he has a serious problem on his hands. When people begin to realize that this war is unjust and that Russian men are being sent off to die. People do not want their sons, husbands, even grandfathers are being sent. They don't want them to die, obviously. Young men are fleeing to the borders, you know, the border with Georgia, the border with Finland. People are trying to get out. And the internal situation in Russia is serious. And, you know, it may mean that Putin's days are numbered, but I wouldn't bet on that. Yes, I would agree with what Linda said. It has been remarkable to see these people who are facing almost certain arrest at best and possibly brutality taking to the streets. And we've also seen at least 200,000 Russians have fled the country, as Linda said. And we have seen a lot of sort of video evidence and other evidence on social media of just the pitiful state of the uh, Russian army. We've seen videos where trainers were telling soldiers, basically, we'll supply you the uniform and the armor and that's it. You have to bring your bedding and you have to bring basically supplies to stop bleeding. If you're shot, we don't have tourniquets. I mean, this has been just shocking. I think that it really has exposed the weakness of Putin's military. And some experts have told me that this mobilization 
breaks an unwritten sort of agreement or pact that Putin had with people that, you know, he could have his military adventures, but leave most people out of it. Don't conscript people. And I even saw one on the Russian state TV, which is very much controlled by Putin, one older gentleman just, you know, expressing outrage that he had been drafted and saying, you know, here I am, an older man, get some ethnic minorities to go. So I think there is a lot of resistance to this mobilization. Also, the discovery of unusual leaks on two natural gas pipelines running under the Baltic Sea from Russia to Germany has led some European leaders and experts to suggest sabotage amid an energy standoff with Russia. So I know there was an investigation that is being started with the Swedish Public Prosecutor's Office. How are these gas leaks affecting Europe? Not immediately, but there is a lot of concern, and we have NATO now saying that these appear to be deliberate acts of sabotage, and we're just beginning to learn some interesting things. There are reports in Germany that the CIA had apparently warned Berlin that potential attacks to the pipelines, and of course, this also shows how vulnerable Europe's energy supply is, and that most experts, independent experts, are pointing there again to the Kremlin as being the most likely actor involved in this. And experts are saying, you know, three simultaneous explosions would be very unlikely to be some kind of natural occurrence. Yeah, so we will have to continue to follow that aspect of these ongoing situations between Russia and Ukraine. And in our next topic, Iranian riot police and security forces clashed with demonstrators in dozens of cities amid continuing protest against the death of 22-year-old Masa Amini. And even Human Rights Watch has expressed concern over the number of deaths and arrests. So do the protesters, do they have legitimate reasons for protesting her death? Absolutely. Her death was just so profoundly shocking. Her infraction was that a bit of hair was showing from under her headscarf and that that should lead to her death is just nothing short of tragic and profoundly wrong. And again, there's, you know, some similarities here to Russia where when people are willing to go to the streets and protest under an authoritarian regime, that tells you that something very serious is underway. And furthermore, for the death of a young woman to trigger that reaction is also extraordinary. Women have led the charge on these protests in Iran and men have joined. And this is a sad, but in some ways heartening example of progress in Iran that women can lead on this. I think Linda is right. And we at VOA, we have a Persian service, which has been getting user generated videos, which they've been carefully verifying. And so many young women sending in videos of them cutting their hair, cutting their long hair in solidarity with Masa Amini and just feeling the injustice of this. And her family saying that she was obviously badly beaten by the so-called morality police. And the protests in Iran are not abating. They are still going on. They've spread throughout the country, I think 80 cities and towns, despite, as Linda said, lethal repression. 
and sometimes live fire. And even um, Tehran government admits that at least 41 people have been killed. And human rights groups say that likely more people have been killed. And there are rumors that Iran's 83-year-old supreme leader, the Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, is gravely ill. We've had uh, President Raisi come out and, you know, try to calm the waters. But basically, people have been putting up with some real economic troubles. And now this killing of this young woman has just really led them to call for at least the morality, so-called morality police to be abolished. Yes, and I think the economic aspect of this is very important. What you have in an authoritarian regime is a kind of unspoken pact between the people and the government that if you, the government, keep us with the basics economically, we don't have to be wealthy, but we have to be able to eat and have shelter and have a somewhat normal life. And the minute that phrase, and in response, people are like, okay, we'll put up with, you know, a lack of personal freedoms of all sorts, freedom of speech, freedom of expression, et cetera, et cetera. When that goes, when the economy is in decline, for whatever reason, and people are feeling almost that they've got nothing to lose, that's when they go to the streets. And we're seeing that, I think, both in Iran and in Russia. That is a really good observation. Well, it's time now for a quick break. And when we return, Italy could have its first female prime minister. Issues in the News is coming to you from the Voice of America in Washington. If you would like to download the program, it's free on iTunes. Just click on the iTunes tab on our website at voaafrica.com. While you're there, check out our other programs, Press Conference USA and Encounter. Also visit us on Facebook and leave a comment or two. Then like us at Current Affairs with Carol Castiel. Now back to our panel via Skype, VOA Senior Diplomatic Correspondent Cindy Sane and Christian Science Monitor Washington Bureau Chief Linda Feldman. Italy could have its first female prime minister and first far-right leader since World War II, and it seems that Georgia Maloney's politics are overshadowing the fact that she could be the first female prime minister of Italy. So what does this signal for Europe? It is, for many, quite a surprise, and some observers are saying that Georgia Maloney, she is nostalgic, she's nationalistic, she's anti-immigrant, anti-LGBTQ, and while during her campaign, she was trying to reassure the United States that she would continue to support Ukraine And she was also trying to reassure Brussels that, you know, she would have sound financial debt policies and that kind of thing. So some observers are seeing kind of a new course and saying maybe she is the first European to successfully copy former President Trump and the Republican Party with this sort of, you know, America first or Italy first, the anti-immigrant rhetoric. So something that the White House has said, the U.S. will continue to work with Italy. It's good NATO ally, but I imagine they're watching pretty closely. Right. And I would add that it's a rise of kind of the neocon right in Western Europe, but you also have Viktor Orban in Hungary. So we're seeing this trend across Europe toward nationalist leaders. And you also have, you know, in Sweden, the Sweden Democrats, who are actually the Nationalist Party there. They had some success last week in elections. You've got Marine Le Pen in France, who won 41% of the vote in her race against 
Emmanuel Macron in April. So we're seeing, I think, the larger trend is a sort of a shift in the, in the European balance toward a nationalist hard right. That is, in turn, giving heart to American conservatives, to the Trumpists in this country. And, you know, we're heading toward an election here, toward our midterm elections. And everybody's already, of course, looking ahead to the 2024 presidential race here. You know, the world has gotten very small. And what happens in Europe doesn't just stay in Europe. I think it kind of feeds movements in other continents even. I echo what Linda said. And I noted, you know, as somebody who covers the State Department, that former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo congratulated Maloney. Some took note of that. Yeah, and Biden hasn't congratulated her yet. You know, obviously the U.S. government knows it has to deal with her and try to keep her inside the tent. I mean, so far she is with Ukraine. But as I said before, European backing for Ukraine could have some limits as the war drags on. Yes, very interesting. And we'll continue to follow those developments. Well, U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris visited South Korea and the demilitarized zone separating North and South Korea. How significant was her visit to the demilitarized zone? Well, Kim, we were hearing there again some very different comments from Vice President Harris than we heard from the former President Trump, who famously had such a good relationship with the North Korean leader. So Harris stood at the demilitarized zone at the border and condemned North Korea's brutal dictatorship, destabilizing weapons and rampant human rights violations. So very strong words from her. And she also met with the South Korean president who is trying to improve ties with the United States and very strong words of support. And I think an ongoing military exercise going on between U.S. and South Korea. Right. And I think, you know, the fact that North Korea conducted a ballistic missile test the day before Kamala Harris arrived in the region was significant. I mean, this is obviously yet another test for Vice President Harris. People are watching her very closely in the event that Joe Biden doesn't run for re-election. She's the obvious front runner, at least in the early going. She's had her struggles as vice president. This trip is an effort to give her experience in international affairs, give her a bit of a spotlight on the world stage. And she's, I think, handled it well. But this is not an easy issue. I mean, the talks between the U.S. over North Korea demilitarization have fallen apart where they've stalled. And meanwhile, North Korea is just barreling ahead with its nuclear weapons and missiles programs. And there's no prospect of re-engagement on those talks. So it's a pretty high stakes situation. And, and having Kamala Harris right in the middle of it is for her both an opportunity and a risk. So then we can say that North Korea conducting its second ballistic missile launch during her visit, that was probably because she did go there. Oh, yeah, for sure. I wanted to get in our last topic here. Hurricane Ian hit the west coast of Florida, leaving millions of people without power. Linda, what do you have on this hurricane? It's moving its way across Florida, across that peninsula, wreaking havoc and destruction along the way. It's now been downgraded to, quote, just a tropical storm. But Tropical storms have very, very high winds, and it's still very, very dangerous. I mean, Floridians are used to storms like this, and so anybody who's thinking straight and lives on the West Coast in the target of the storm had moved inland and had gotten out of the way. 
the cleanup is going to take a long time. Of course, here I am in Washington, and the politics of this are very profound. Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, is thinking of running for president in 2024. He's considered a rising star in the Republican Party. He's very antagonistic toward Joe Biden in the White House, but they've put politics aside, at least for now, and are working together to help the state. But I predict this won't last long. What are some of DeSantis' critics saying about his handling of this hurricane? My take is that so far he has actually handled it quite well. Ron DeSantis is usually quite antagonistic toward the press and doesn't even release his daily schedule until the day is over. But he has had press conferences. Every few hours, he's having another press conference. And these press conferences are not to beat up on the press. He does spar with the press still. This is to get the word out. I mean, to be a successful governor of Florida, you have got to know how to handle a hurricane. The state is experienced in this. This is Ron DeSantis's first major hurricane. And he's, by all indications, he's done everything he can do to tell people you have to get out of the way if you're in the path of the storm. You have to go move to safety. He's done everything he can to get Washington to do its part, which is to you know declare an emergency, fund the relief efforts, and have his state emergency bureaucracy work with the federal emergency bureaucracy, FEMA, to work together, put politics to the side, and uh, help people. That's a good point, that they are able to put the politics aside and the safety of people first. Absolutely. Well, it's time now to find out what is weighing on the minds of our panelists this week. Linda, what is weighing on your mind? Well, I'm afraid I just have to go back to Russia. As I said before, I've spent a lot of time there in the past, beginning as a college student in 1980, and just finding it such a fascinating place. And for me, the moment when the U.S. warned Americans to get out of Russia, which happened this week, was just so profoundly sad. I mean, I understand why they're doing that. We've reached the point where nuclear war is a possibility. The U.S., by the way, has made clear they're not going to respond to any nuclear attack in kind with nuclear weapons. But just the idea that Russia could launch even a tactical nuke at Ukraine is just unthinkable. And for Americans to be told to get out of Russia, it just it's so important, I think, for cultural reasons, for Americans to be there, to be experiencing that country and all the wonderful things it has to offer. And likewise with Russians here so that we can understand each other. There's been just over the decades, lots and lots of misunderstanding and tension. And yet it's culturally such an interesting and wonderful place. I'm just very sad that Americans have now been told to leave. Yes. And Cindy, what's weighing on your mind this week? Well, we've already talked about it a lot. And as Linda said, what's been weighing on my mind are these scenes of people taking to the streets in Iran over the killing of this young woman and other young women taking to the streets and then being brutally shot down by the authorities. And these protests in Russia with people loudly and brazenly speaking out against this military mobilization. And I saw it was very small scale, but even a very limited, you know, maybe a dozen people or a couple dozen turning out even in Shenzhen, China, because there was yet another uh, snap lockdown because of COVID in a city of 18 million people. I think there were 10 cases and China still has its 
zero COVID policy. And some people were just just fed up with the situation. And I'm just thinking that, you know, here in the U.S., sometimes even if if we believe strongly in something and and would like to protest, oh, it's too much trouble maybe to travel to another place or whatever, the people, you know, risking brutality, risking arrests or worse, perhaps disappearance is amazing, the courage. And also just that people, uh, as Linda said, will put up with some economic hardship, but the combination of economic hardship and then just a lack of personal liberty seems to just be too much. Well, thank you both for those thought-provoking reflections, and we will end the show on those thoughts. My thanks go to our panelists, VOA Senior Diplomatic Correspondent Cindy Sane and Christian Science Monitor Washington Bureau Chief Linda Feldman. I'm Kim Lewis, and be sure to visit us at voaafrica.com for all of our VOA Current Affairs shows. And thanks for joining us for Issues in the News. (music) 